This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. So I'd first like to thank uh, the panelists who are up here. These are the, the experts with all the, the brass on their uh, chest. And if you see them listing to the left as they walk over to the podium to speak, that's because they've been through a lot. Uh, they've given uh, a great service and sacrifice to a, our country uh, with multiple, multiple deployments uh, in their careers. Uh, having served in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have uh, two trauma directors in Colonel Martin and Captain Rodriguez, um, Colonel Fortuna, and Colonel Gross are both uh, chiefs and directors of the different trauma training centers, too. So we have a great uh, wealth of experience up here um, and great educators as well. So thank you for coming to join us at this Battlefield Trauma M&M. Just a little bit of introduction. The Joint uh, Trauma System Combat Casualty Care Conference uh, last February I want to say celebrated, but remember that it was its 500th, 500th conference. So I uh, talked to Captain Stockinger a little bit about that when he presented that uh, information. Many in this room, uh, a small number of us here, but uh, participated in that, whether they were in theater or called in from back home or and took care of all those patients. Um, it's profoundly changed the way we care for combat injured and profoundly changed the way we care care for the injured in our, in our country as well. So it's been a great, great uh, improvement in the way we care for the, the injured people that we, we so dearly care for. And this is not going to be that. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to give uh, a little bit of a reminder to those who have been there about the patients we took care of, remind us of what we took care of over there, the patients we saw, and for those who weren't over there, are here to learn about that, to see some of these injuries, understand them, and understand the great care and dedication that went into making sure that we improved upon the care that we delivered over there. So that's part of this panel discussion this morning. The format will be as an M&M. Each presenter will give a case. Uh, there will be a little bit of a discussion, too, which we'll ask you guys to participate in. Did you feel that the standard of care was met? based on what they present to you, what your knowledge may be, especially of the military uh, clinical practice guidelines. Was the care within the standard that you know it to be? Were there any opportunities for improvement? If there were opportunities for improvement, and this is where the key should be, what were they? Was it an education issue? Do we just not know enough at that time and how we could have done better? Was it a systems issue? Was the system not ready at that point in time to take care of such a devastating injury? Was it a communications issue? And that's where we're hoping the discussion will lead us to. So without further uh, me rambling on, I'd like to introduce Colonel Gross to discuss a, a battlefield death, a point of injury care. Uh, so without any more, Colonel Gross. Yes, yes, sir. Is it possible to get that monitor turned on? Uh, thank you. Usual disclaimer. Our patient is a service member who was on uh, foot patrol when an improvised explosive device was activated. At the point of injury, the casualty uh, received tourniquets to both lower extremities as well as combat gauze packing of a perineal wound. Prior to arrival to the Roll 2 uh, resuscitative surgical site, a report uh, received indicated the patient had uh, no vital signs. The patient was unresponsive. The other information provided prior to arrival was the presence of a traumatic amputation of left lower extremity, a mangled right lower extremity, an avulsion of soft tissue of the right upper extremity. 
patient had a short rotary wing trip to the uh, resuscitative surgical site. Upon arrival to the resuscitative surgical site, the patient had no vital signs, no carotid radial femoral pulses. The uh, patient had no uh, respirations. Intubation was effected without uh, inductive medications. GCS was three, pupils non-responsive. The extremity examination revealed a traumatic amputation of left lower extremity, tourniquets in place, no bleeding, mangled right lower extremity, tourniquet in place, no bleeding, avulsion, soft tissue, right upper extremity, also no bleeding. A resuscitative thoracotomy was undertaken. As that was being done, venous access was uh, uh, trying to be obtained uh, unsuccessfully, and uh, there's a question of functionality of the intraosseous in the right humeral head. A left thoracotomy, thoracotomy was undertaken, and uh, no blood in the left chest, no cardiac activity, no blood in the pericardium, heart was empty. Efforts were discontinued less than nine minutes after arrival to the site, the resuscitative surgical site. As per standard, uh, service members uh, uh, undergo post-mortem examination on the left side, you see a low dox imaging, uh, uh, low dose X-ray, total body X-ray. This can be done in about six minutes, done standardly to ensure there's no unidentified, uh, uh, unexploded ordnance. On the right side, you see the CT imaging. In the lower extremities, you can see the artifact from the debris, which is ground into the wound. Postmortem photos at Dover reveal the lower extremities. And the photo, once again, demonstrates the grime, the debris uh, into the wounds. This is the posterior view of the, uh, of the deceased. Uh, the next image will be that of a closer image of the uh, post-sacral region. Uh, towards the uh, top of the screen is the head. Uh, the soft tissue flaps are splayed apart. You can see the sacrum and uh, uh, the posterior uh, musculature. This is a view from the front after dissection by our uh, colleagues, Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. Uh, what you can, once you get head is at the top, you can see the uh, L5 S1 uh, uh, disc. Uh, the center lower part of the, the screen. Uh, the aorta has been incised and opened. To uh, your right, you can see the, the left iliac. To your left, you can see the right iliac with a uh, uh, injury. You can also gain some appreciation of disruption of the uh, sacrum uh, and the ilium. This is an image from the front, looking at the left uh, common femoral artery. The obturator is within the lumen of the common femoral artery. Notice the uh, soft tissue uh, defect, the soft tissue defect extended from the uh, pubis to the sacrum posteriorly. CT imaging revealed the significant amount of disruption um, in both the uh, transverse as well as the frontal planes. You can see disruption uh, the SI joint. CT reconstruction uh, further demonstrates the injury. The uh, enteriosis was noted not to be functioning. Our uh, colleagues at Armed Forces Medical Examiners uh, then uh, investigated. Uh, this demonstrates that the cannula was within the uh, appropriate location in the humeral head and a angiography was then conducted to confirm uh, there was, uh, uh, it was appropriate and uh, should have been functioning well. Okay. So potential issues for this patient, proceeding with a resuscitative thoracotomy in this patient, obviously yield would, opportunity for survival would be low. Would junctional tourniquets have been, had a positive impact here? And, uh, 
the use of the intraosseous line. Thank you, Colonel Gross. Uh, can you please forward to the next slide? So you've identified some major issues here, and we want to discuss was this, based on our knowledge, uh, going into it at the time the patient was taken care of in theater within the standard of care as we know it. So based on your opinion of this, what do you think? Was this standard of care met for this patient? Uh, standard of care met. The uh, issue of the resuscitative thoracotomy, uh, the, the time, the challenge we have in theater, as is well as common here in uh, Garrison, is the time from uh, loss of uh, vital signs. Uh, truly the fog of war exists, and uh, this patient uh, obviously had no opportunity for her survival once uh, uh, the once uh, the uh, identified how clearly empty the heart was. Uh, so that would be uh, one consideration. Our clinical practice guideline directs for that uh, uh, resuscitative thoracotomy can be undertaken with uh, loss of vital signs no greater than 10 minutes. Uh, however, in all honesty, uh, that is extended significantly uh, while we're in theater. But for a show of hands from the audience on the issue of the patient with presenting with no vital signs, with presenting to a resuscitative forward location, performing a resuscitative thoracotomy, does everyone feel that that was indicated or not? Majority agree. This panel uh, on the uh, well, I'd also say it depends on the setting. If this guy shows up in a mass cow, absolutely not indicated. Right. If he shows up like this, then indicated. Sometimes it's also indicated, you know, just to do everything you can right. to show the unit he's with. You're doing everything you can. But in a mass count, no. Right. Single patient, yes. Right. So what, what year was this, Colonel Gross? Colonel Gross, what year was this? Uh, I prefer not to identify. Okay. Okay, so if we can move on to the – oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So what was the blood capability at the forward resuscitative – uh, care site, and did he start any blood transfusion prior to the thoracotomy? The, uh, I was not a participant in this case, uh, and in terms of the capability, um, this would have been done in the era where there should have, uh, typically our uh, surgical teams are deployed, and this uh, team would have been deployed with between 25 and 30 units of PACT, 25 to 30 of uh, FFP and uh, would have been able to activate a threshold blood drive. Sir? Uh, thank you very much for uh, your presentation. It was nice. I'm Amar, trauma surgeon from uh, Qatar. My question uh, for you, uh, yes, the downtime is very important, like for how long he was uh, in uh, arrest, but the other thing that seems that is an explosion, and I didn't hear anything about the status of his GCS and the pupils, like it was a fixed dilated pupils or not, because I think it will add more uh, if you want to take a decision for a sustative uh, thoracotomy. So if I, I have a patient with such injury and a fixed dilated pupil, maybe I will stop at that point. Um, if I uh, interpret your question appropriate obviously the decision about uh, timing and noticing that there was no uh, no apparent neurologic uh, function yeah. we uh, tend to be relatively more aggressive I think for part because of the uh, 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 oftentimes the uh, as in we do know that the capability uh, our outcomes are generally fairly good compared to our civilian counterparts we, in our uh, ser series from downrange, we have a, a survival rate of about 12%. And they, our UK colleagues have actually demonstrated resuscitative thoracotomy about 20% uh, in, in their hands. So, so those are some reasons that we uh, tend to be more aggressive. Our clinical practice guideline has not been updated since 2012. And uh, there are major rewrites underway which would reflect more our, our true practice. Thank you. Colonel Rema. I, I just want to make a quick comment that, uh, about the junctional tourniquet. I, I don't think it was up on the slide there, but 
looking at the pictures, I, I, don't, I think that would have not worked in this case. But um, having not put one on a real patient myself, and uh, I think there's only a couple people that have put one on a real patient uh, since we've fielded them. Um, but I think uh, there, there wasn't anything really to press against, it, it appeared. Um, and, uh, you know, Rebola also probably would not have worked. So, you know, to me, that's a, that's a, would maybe take a panel, but maybe not a survivable uh, injury. Um, my thoughts. Correct. And, and the notion of discussing the junctional tourniquets, um, this is introduced uh, for discussion because uh, in our population with the uh, high bilateral amputations, you can imagine gaining effective tourniquets proximal would be challenging. Oftentimes, a junctional tourniquet, which is able to include the common femorals bilaterally, is a more effective uh, way to uh, control lower extremity hemorrhage. In addition, one of the junctional tourniquets used, the SAM junctional tourniquet, has also been approved uh, as a pelvic binder. And we have noted in those patients who do have bilateral uh, amputations, approximately 30% chance of uh, pelvic fracture. Take two more questions, Dr. Howe, and then Colonel Nassani. Um, I'm just curious about your ultrasound capability there. There's a little bit of civilian data about the use of ultrasound to help guide to or against uh, resuscitative thoracotomy. And I'm curious if you're considering that for the new guideline um, and what the capability is for those of us who have not served. Thank you. The um, Reading the record, uh, uh, no ultrasound probe was applied uh, in this specific patient, although that is a very, very standard part of our uh, uh, deployed kit. Um, in fact, I feel the military surgeon should be expert and very willing and eager to apply ultrasound. Uh, and that is uh, a clinical practice guideline, ideally would be updated to include the use of, uh, of, um, of uh, ultrasound. They have been very helpful, I think, in this patient. Sir, last question. Hi, Omar Bolat, um, a colonel in the Army Reserves. I spent 10 years with forward surgical teams, absolutely the thoracotomy. Uh, I mean, I would have done it if I were there, if it was under 10 minutes. If there were more than two patients, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, junctional tourniquets, I know that they're fielded. I know the forward surgical teams don't have them. They're even fielding aortic tourniquets now, which started about 2015, last I saw. And that's something that may have been an option for a guy like this. Um, it, it's new, so I doubt it was in the time frame when you guys... Were, um, when this gentleman was injured, but uh, that's certainly an option nowadays. And, um, yeah, they absolutely have FAST. They use it all the time. Yes, uh, uh, thank you. Fielding uh, the uh, equipment to theater has been a challenge. In fact, the SAM junctional tourniquet was, even though uh, these products had been investigated, actually one of the, the junctional tourniquets had been approved since 2009. It was not actually fielded until many years later, and only by a rapid fielding initiative by actually taking uh, junctional tourniquets, specifically the SAMs, to theater where they fielded. The um, uh, aortic, uh, abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet uh, would possibly have been some benefit. One of the challenges we have with uh, fielding some of this kit is naturally that would have needed to be applied very early in the, this patient's course. And in terms of weight and cube, uh, the SAM junctional tourniquet is a uh, uh, smaller and uh, um, and that's why it's been fielded so we can actually be taken in the the kit uh, at the point of injury with our with our medics. Okay. Thank you, Colonel. Appreciate it. Uh, next up, we have uh, Colonel Matt Martin, who will be talking about a uh, far forward surgical care issue. All right. Good morning, everyone, and, and thanks for joining us at this early hour. I have no disclosures. I do not speak for the government. Um, I think one of the themes of this meeting has been put the patient first, so let's start with our patient. This is a 27-year-old male soldier. He's got a wife, one child at home. He's in, he enlisted to support his family, and then 9-11 happened, and he found himself deployed. He worked his way up to E5, and he's now in his second deployment in Iraq. And he's on one of the usual morning... <laughs> So that's just to give you a little sight and sounds of what you might have experienced. So as a standard IED, as we just heard, all this was in a facility, which he's not the only patient, which is pretty standard. 
So a lot of things going on, a little bit of chaos. But definitely he's the most severely injured one who's arrived. So he has multiple amputations, extremity hemorrhage, truncal fragment wounds, difficulty breathing, and in the field he has a sternal IL only. Obviously difficult IV access when you have multiple extremity amputations. And this is our patient, so he looks something like this, which is similar to what Kirby just talked about, a pretty standard bad blast injury. He's normotensive, in quotes, systolic of 125, and the GCS has now declined to 8, but his pupils are normal. He's tachypnic and shallow breathing, 92% an honorable breather. He has those amputations, his right arm is mangled, and he has those abdominal and chest fragment wounds, but you're not sure if any of those are, are real deep. He has a fast exam that's negative. Question is, what now? Amputations, those multiple trunk fragment wounds, although, again, he's quote-unquote normotensive. So just a question to think about, what should be our initial resuscitation? Should we not give him anything? Like, you know, we talk about a lot in civilian penetrating trauma and hold him until he gets to the OR. Should we give him two units of PAC cells? Should we start with two and two of FFP and PAC cells, or should we activate massive transfusion for this patient? Although, again, he's quote-unquote normotensive, and this is just, just to think about. Or should we do what we used to do and give him 20 liters of crystalloid? And what should our initial management be? He's in the ER. He's not in the OR yet. Should we intubate, get a central line into the OR, go to the OR and do it there? Should we intubate, get some additional x-rays? He's got a bunch of fractures, right? Should we intubate and line and then get a CT scan? Should we transfer him to our much smarter colleagues at the Air Force Hospital? All these are possible choices. So his, this is what happens. The blood is held because his blood pressure is okay. They decide to intubate and place a central line because he doesn't have good access and get some x-rays. And then there is a mention of maybe get a quick head CT on the way to the OR. So he gets rapid sequence induction and he arrests. He goes into PEA. So the next step. So now the massive transfusion pack is started. He has a brief round of CPR, one dose of epi. He has return of circulation. He's now tachycardic and his blood pressure is 95. He does get a central line, and he also has that sternal IO placed in the field. They do a FAST exam, exam and it's ne- again, and it's negative. And now he gets a chest X-ray, uh, since he's just been innovated. And this is your chest X-ray. So I, I, I don't think it, there's much of a discussion. Now it's time to go to the OR. Of course, when you're in Baghdad, that means carrying him up six flights of stairs, because the elevators never work. And you're in the operating room, and this would be kind of your standard FST or cash <laughs> operating room. We don't operate much back-to-back in civilian trauma, but but you can see it it looks like a relatively standard OR, so you have all your usual basic supplies and equipment. So what approach would you take? He's got that massive right hemothorax, right, and a fragment wound on the right lateral chest. You put him in left lateral D-cube and do a posterior lateral thoracotomy, which, you know, is probably give you the best exposure of the chest. Supine and anterolateral thoracotomy, supine and a sternotomy. Do you just do a laparotomy and place a chest tube in that, or do you do chest tube only and see how he responds? You know, again, a bunch of discussions that went on, and I'll tell you what happened. He was placed in a right, he had a right posterolateral thoracotomy, so in left lateral D-cube, to again maximize exposure to the lung. He has a large hemothorax evacuated. He has a minor lung contusion, no active bleeding. He has a giant hole in the right diaphragm and massive bleeding from the central liver injury. And you're in left lateral D-cube position. So I think you probably know how most of us, you know, would feel. Again, you're in left lateral DQ position. So Houston, we have a problem here. Right now we have to get into the belly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it there because, again, we're, we're pressed for time. And he ends up having a long, stormy course. He does survive. But I think those are the issues that we identify. So here's the issues for you. Did we miss the presence of shock? He was normal tensive, right? Was our initial resuscitation adequate? according to what we would do today. Should we have innovated at that point in the ER? Did we delay getting to the OR? And then there's obviously the wrong cavity incision and wrong positioning. So, so those are our issues. I'll open it up to any comments from the audience or the panel. And again, one of, one of the things we want to do with this session is not do cheerleading of here's everything we've done great of here's some of the problems we've had, here's some of the problems we're still having. All right, thank you, Colonel. I think that, you know, getting back to that idea is, was this within the standard of care at the time that we knew how to take care of these patients? And was there any, if not, where was the opportunity for improvement? 
And if you can comment a little bit, and then open up to this panel here and everyone in the audience, these patients who come in and they are normotensive and they're missing three limbs, where do we find, where's the shock? Are they in shock? Are we missing it? How are we missing it? Yeah, and I'll go through my thoughts. I want to hear the audience or the panel thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I think. All right, so let's hear it, Kyle. Uh, so um, first, uh, more than one time I experienced uh, and was burned more than one time as well with a patient that came in with tourniquets on uh, that looked fairly good. Uh, and then only after <clears throat> their first very low blood pressure uh, that I realized the tourniquets weren't on very well. Uh, but the other uh, alternative is the tourniquets are on, but they were placed on, you know, after the, the blood was already uh, on the ground at the point of injury. And uh, I, I also have seen uh, folks just uh, fairly, fairly, you know, our young, healthy population fairly rock, rock solid uh, hemodynamically, uh, perfectly compensated until you just, you know, push them over that edge. So that was the first thing I'd, I'd, it reminded me, or the case reminded me of. Um, the second thing, and you know, in the chaos of five or six patients, often you know, who's who's got a chest X-ray already and who doesn't? Uh, seemingly, um, seemingly, the there was some area to improve in the in the resuscitation uh, with a with a chest X-ray, with placing a chest tube, you know, in the appropriate place, which is was in the trauma bay, and. Uh, you know, potentially you would have had a different course in the operating room. I'd, I'll just give my opinion on, on putting patients in, in other positions than flat. I don't like it. I'll bump them up. I've done that a couple times, bump just to get a little bit more, uh, more view, um, more uh, incision posteriorly. But um, I, I, always, uh, I always plan for me maybe not being right. And, uh, and I hate to be not right and be in the wrong position in the operating room. Thanks. That was great. So I do have a, have a question about the, uh, during the arrest, uh, did you consider putting in chest tubes or decompressing the chest, looking for the H's and T's of, of arrest? He got uh, epi and quick CPR, got his pulse back, and they got a chest X-ray. The, one of the comments that uh, Kyle was talking about is he was relatively okay. I think you, your slide said that as far as the blood pressure. Systolic blood pressure, 125 is, is excuse me, it's 100, right? 125. 125, his heart rate was what? Sorry, it was about 125 also. Yeah, the heart rate of 125 would really have me concerned. What I, what I, what I uh, quickly realized with these blast patients, if, they're, if, they're, if they have tourniquets in place and their heart rate is less than 100, they are probably hemostatic and they probably have a circulating blood volume. But when they start getting in the 120s, 130s, their blood volume is gone and uh, they really need to start resuscitation uh, prior to getting to the operating room. Jen, what do we do wrong? This patient needs a massive transfusion on arrival no questions asked. I mean, if you're not starting blood immediately just with this injury pattern, and that's what the CPG says as well, it's an indication for massive transfusion. So that's... A, we still have surgeons deploying who will get to theater and say, what, what do you mean there's CPGs? Yeah. Yeah, but and Just I so think, you know, again, some of the problems we still have. And the other thing, like this patient could have arrested and then uh, not gotten circulation back and had a resuscitative thoracotomy, and again, you would have seen an empty heart. You know, in these injuries, resuscitative thoracotomy without blood going in through a, you know, a, a, a central line in the upper extremities, you know, subclavian or usually subclavian, uh, is, is worthless because you're going to have an empty heart. So when someone comes in with this injury, massive transfusion has to start immediately. And, that's, and that's not my opinion. That's the CPG. <laughs> I think we're up to 32 CPGs, and if a uh, doc going there doesn't know it, well, you need to do some more push-ups. Um, one of the things that I learned is that you roll them over, you drop an x-ray plate, you shoot an x-ray before you start your ABCs. As crazy as that sounds, if they survive to the hospital without an IV or without an intubation, they'll survive another minute while you do that. Um, if you need an A-line or a central line, they can do that in the operating room. There's no reason to ever do that in the ER. And these are the things that you learn over time after having done it wrong a couple of times. Um, and, and other than that, you know, uh, yeah, flat, flat, always flat. And I, I don't even know how they got into lateral decubitus. I mean, the forward surgical team, we got 
the NBC-compatible stretchers. We don't have any. This was actually at a split cache. Got it. our regular OR bed. I, I saw the video. That, that was not, yeah. It's, you guys have much more equipment than I'm used to. <laughs> Good stuff. Sir? Flaherty, El Paso. So if I had been the trauma medical director in theater at the time, I would have been completely disheartened seeing, you know, this case. And I'm going to pick up on Colonel Gurney's points because, you know, that's why we made the CPG. Don't think about it. Just do what we tell you to do. When somebody comes in with this kind of massive injury, you start with the, with the massive transfusion protocol right away. And so, uh, you know, the pieces on this that I, I guess I'll talk about is, uh, you know, so how do we PI that? You know, what's the system PI for that opportunity for improvement? How did somebody get in the field? Did, did they know the CPG? Did they not know the CPG? Did they just not think when it came, did they, did they know it when they came through, but then in the heat of the battle, they just, you know, brain cramped? Those are two different problems that need two different solutions. How far were we into this war before we even had CPGs? Exactly. Another, another point, we went to war without a single CPG, right? In fact, this was before there was a CPG on any of this. Exactly. There was handed down knowledge. Okay. Oh, I don't want to take everyone else's time. All right. So I'd like to keep moving with uh, Matt's. Uh, we can go past the discussion so one, and go into one, your... one quick comment because we're hitting on these CPGs. Yeah. Right? So the ultrasound negative is was a, a miss. I'm not sure its role in this case. It's my only comment with the penetrating trauma. The the comment about the CPGs to the look at the heart and see if there's an injury there because okay. the abdominal side of this is useless. Being a director comment. at one of the C-Stores platforms, we were just up here talking. These CPGs are important. We're 15 years into this. We still don't have joint tri-service training requirements across the board. We still tr struggle to get the CPGs worked into our curriculums. It's no wonder that people get in and don't know coming from a variety of different mechanisms, and it's something we're actively working on uh, correcting, but we're, we're, we missed the boat on that, in my opinion, um, so, so I'll just run through my thoughts on this in one minute. Uh, Jen already said this. We don't, re we don't rely necessarily on vital signs. This is an injury pattern that calls for a massive transfusion, and setting rules is good. And, and our rule in Baghdad was four units per mangled extremity or amputation, packed cells and FFP. So right there, this guy starts off 12 and 12. You don't even think about it. It's ordered. In fact, if you get the call, it's ready ahead of him. Uh, we know they're dying from bleeding. This is even at the, this is at the hospital. This is not in the field. Still, number one cause of death is bleeding. You don't need to do all that stuff in the ER. Right? I call it the blue plate special. People say, oh, we can do that in five minutes. It never takes five minutes. Right? It takes time. And if you don't bring them directly to the OR, which this guy probably should have had, you want to make your ER stop look like this. Right? The, the world's fastest pit stop ever. It should be to maybe get a blood sample so you can get some blood and get them to the OR. Next slide, please. This isn't it. And the incision we already talked about, we know elective surgeons optimize exposure, right? Trauma surgeons optimize maneuverability and options. And then uh, uh, we tell everyone now, think twice if you're doing anything other than supine for an exploratory operation. Stop and think twice. And last, you know, should you give up on me? I can tell you there was discussions of, have we done this guy any favors? I mean, you know. And this guy had a long, rocky course. But the other thing is these guys have, young guys have an amazing recovery capability. So, so I'm glad we didn't give up on them, although we certainly talked about it. And this was, this was a slide I wrote back in 2010 in a presentation I gave. Next slide, please. This isn't working. And, and this is how I ended that. And this is an angel flight carrying a dead soldier out of Baghdad. And, I, and again, I said then for preventable deaths, we should be shooting for zero. So I was overjoyed when the NASA report came out with exactly that goal, zero deaths. And I think you'll see the authors of that were many East members. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colonel Martin. Next up is uh, Colonel Fortuna, who will be talking about a... Uh, case that we saw in theater at a roll three. With the, this is going to specifically talk about the transition of care between roles. So, Colonel Fortuna. Yeah, this is actually a joint patient of uh, Dr. Grabo's and I. Um, it uh, definitely deals with uh, probably some of the most difficult decisions that we make in the Air Force and as, as trauma directors at these different sites that are a little unique um, as compared to our civilian counterparts. Is, 
you know, really addresses when is it safe to transport these patients. Um, and obviously we did this tens of thousands of times, um, and uh, we definitely don't always get it right. 27-year-old um, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces troop injured in a rollover ATV accident. He's a polytrauma patient initially seen and cared for at CAF. I'm not going to get into that part as we're trying to expedite things moving along. The initial workup revealed a grade 4 BCVI and left hemi uh, paresis. And you can see here on the CT, he's got a grade 4 blunt cerebrovascular injury. He was found on head CT to have a, a large MCA distribution stroke, which would be expected. You can see some representative pics here. So at CAF, he was a GCS at 15. He had been stabilized with his damage control resuscitation, and he's transferred to Bath, pretty standard kind of course, uh, post-injury day two. Uh, we get him at Bagram. He remains with a GCS post-injury, uh, 15, days three through five, neurosurgical evaluation consultation. I'm going to open this up to you guys. Considerations, when do we fly him? What things do you worry about, not worry about? Is there anything to worry about? So from those who have been in theater and moving patients in and out, so one issue is transferring a patient like this out of Kandahar. Ready to fly, not ready to fly. Talk through with your, um, your flight surgeon, who's actually located in Qatar at the time, transferring him up to Bagram to someone like Dr. Fortuna. Who, were you in Bagram or launched at the time for this? I was at Bagram for this. You were in Bagram for this one, so uh, multiple, multiple deployments, right? Yeah. So um, issues with that. Is it time to transfer two days out from injury? You don't know your operational tempo. You've got to make a bed, find a transfer. What should have been the treatment of choice in Kandahar with that type of injury? How would you manage that? For me, or are you opening up to the audience? Anyone want to venture to uh, comment on how that should have been managed in Kandahar, a grade four blunt cerebrovascular injury, GCS of 15 and a known stroke? Do you have head and neck teams in theater? Uh, we do. We had, a, we had a neurosurgeon. We had a vascular surgeon. Can you move them to the patient rather than the patient to them? I mean, the flights are unpressurized, and that's going to be a problem here. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, that's your primary problem. actually have a neurosurgery and vascular at both locations. You have them at both locations? Yep. Oh, you, you guys were uh, wealthy with neurosurgeons. I think we're down to five in the active component now, right? It's, it's a small number. Five vascular surgeons? Neurosurgeons. Neurosurgeons. Always a neurosurgeon at both locations throughout right. the Right. Yeah. To this day, yes. But that, that would be my comment. Move the uh, doc to the patient, not the patient to the doc. To, to do what? Well, what, I mean, what are you going to do surgically for this? Oh, God. Uh, now you're getting outside of my scope of practice. <laughs> I'm going to get him to a head and neck team. Okay. So from a vascular surgery standpoint... What, what, what would his optimal management have been? Or is early transfer appropriate for someone like this? Right. Um, I do think that the knowledge of how these patients are transferred, uh, being low-level, unpressurized for the hops between calf and bath are important to understand. It's also more important to understand the length of time at altitude and what kind of pressurization we can do in the larger aircrafts, moving them from Bagram to uh, Larmsey. I think uh, two days in this patient with a normal history course was probably appropriate to move. Uh, aspirin really, when indicated, even for uh, grade four blunt cerebrovascular injuries, uh, even in the presence of a, a stroke, and we know there's low conversion rates, I would not have anticoagulated him any further. Anyone disagree with that management from the audience? Anyone want to comment on that? How about from our esteemed panel? I'll just say for, for, for transfers, you really need to break it down into intra-theater and then, and then out-of-theater. And, and I worried a hell of a lot more about that 45-minute helicopter flight you know, from Baghdad to the next place versus the hours-long flight to Lonstool where a CCAT team is taking care of that patient. 
And, and again, another, another lesson learned, you know, we, we went to war with pretty inexperienced helicopter crews. The, the standards for the medics who were on board were not the same up to the civilian standards. And, and it took us a while to start getting that right. So those helicopter transports are fraught with peril. You need to make sure, boy, you need to make sure your patient is, is ready for that. So the CCAT teams, that's an ICU in the sky. Right. I don't worry much about that. So this patient is transferred from CAF to BAF in a C-130 with a CCAT team? Perfect. Okay. Now the fun starts. So we decide at Bagram that he's safe to fly. He's flown post-injury day six with the GCS at 15 on discharge to CCAT and a new CT prior to flying with no changes. One hour from Larmsey, the patient has acute decompensation and significant changes in GCS. An in-flight emergency is called, activating an ambulance response to the flight line and emergency transfer to the Larmsey ICU. He's intubated in flight. Anybody ever flown CCAT? That is a, a feat in and of itself. It's not easy because of the way these patients get packaged. Upon arrival to Larmsey, an uh, emergency T is obtained with signs of significant cerebral edema, shift, and early herniation, and he's taken to the operating room for emergent craniotomy. These are my questions still to this day. So this gets back into the probably will be the next slide up that Dr. Fortuna would show is where was the standard of care met at the time that this patient was in theater. Did he receive the appropriate care with, uh, for the blunt cerebrovascular injury? Was he managed appropriately, and was he transferred appropriately? Uh, sir? Yeah, uh, Putnam from University of Pittsburgh System. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's, it's hard to guess on this patient because you don't know how the period of cerebral edema was going to occur in this large you know, stroke. Uh, but you know, I, I, just as a, you know, again, post kind of M&M comment, you know, flying him day one or two, you know, when he's GCS at 15, or waiting through until he gets through his maximum edema period, because you, like you mentioned, you know you're flying in a depressurized cabin. You can have more pressure as you come down. I'm sure you reversed his head as you landed. Did all the standard CCAT protocols. But that's one thing I might, you know, comment on either right away before the edema gets bad, or wait until you essentially get through that period of maximum edema. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. You know, some of the factors that I want to look at here is, uh, you know, did you fly at a, a lower cabin altitude pressure? How was he managed in terms of positioning in the air? Did you go through the CCAT record to look and see if there were any episodes of hypotension or hypoxia? And did you put a, um, did you measure his ICP before you before they went straight to craniectomy? And was, you sort of said it was early cerebral edema. Kind of, where was this on the spectrum? I, yeah, um, yes, yes, and yes to all of the above. Um, uh, all of the precautions that we could take with uh, in-flight management and uh, preparation cabin altitude were taken. Um, you know, this is where a lot of great work has been done uh, with uh, Jay Johanneman, the folks out of the Sea Star uh, Cincinnati, with um, increases in ICPs on takeoff and landing, and we know that no matter what you do, they do go up, so it's very hard to... Um, protect in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I do uh, think that we're spot on with the comments about um, ensuring this patient is well outside his window of maximal swelling, uh, which typically is five to seven days in these folks, and um, we flew him right in the middle of it. So that was probably our biggest error in judgment. Um, some of those constraints do come. This was a little later in the conflict. And when we start to get drawdown on when you actually have aircraft available to fly and then how that impacts your resources in theater uh, with what you have. And these patients uh, uh, can certainly be resource intensive. So there is this um, um, uh, kind of push and, and feeling to keep your footprint small in theater, not knowing what's going to come in. All these things factored into the decision to move him. Um, I think it's also great insight um, as to looking at the CCAT data, and it's um, the reason I put the real-time PI down there. We've, we've done an excellent job at collecting data at point of injury. We've done an awesome job at collecting data at each of the fixed facilities, whether they be roll two through five. Um, we collected data in our CCAT uh, transfers. However, all this was uh, hand-collected on sheets of paper, uh, none of it digitized. 
Um, all of it extracted, uh, at least by us at Larmsey, talking to Carlos, very little extracted in the registries when they hopped the Atlantic, and certainly something that we're working to uh, rectify as we move forward for the next conflict. I hope that hit all of them. Just a quick question, because I was just recently in Bagram, but um, was there a reason he flew f uh, to Bagram? Why, why he didn't stay at CAF for his... Um, yes, we uh, do very little uh, out-of-theater transfer out of Kandahar. Okay, because when I was just recently there, this was the frustration I had as the czar, was um, a lot of times we they would bring, you know, the mercy of the logistics now is even worse because it's it's all fixed wing. We don't have the stops in between, and the, the aircraft availability is a lot, a lot more limited. Right. But um, a lot of times patients would be transferred up only to sit with us for a few days, and then when they would make that final flight to Larmsey, they go right back to Kandahar. Sure. Biggest issue is validating flight surgeons out of Bagram. The whole AeroVac system hub is out of Bagram. Bagram is the AE evacuation point out of Afghanistan. Good questions. Excellent. So, standard of care met. Anyone disagree <clears> that standard of care was met for this patient at the time? Opportunities for improvement, I think we've hit. Um, this definitely generated a lot of discussion over the VTC. Um, I think, again, to echo some of the comments made, probably one of the best um, uh, tools that we had at our disposal to help um, save lives and prevent future problems was real-time PI um, across the continuum that happened every Thursday, and this certainly generated a lot of um, uh, discussion and uh, all the way up to potentially uh, setting up a CPG for this type of patient movement, um, which we decided probably was not necessary. And then the education training systems and communication, um, we certainly uh, made some adjustments um, off of this. So, yeah, so uh, I mean, I, I think we probably all have trouble with really was that standard of care. I, I think that the care followed the expected paradigm for the time. And the real question was, was that paradigm correct for the system that we built? Uh, and would you look at changing that because the, the implications of changing that, of course, are big. If you start keeping people in theater for longer, then you encumber more resources in theater. Sure. But I'm not sure that we as the big organization met the standard of care. I don't disagree. That was really kind of the crux of the conversation. But, you know, do you generate a CPG where anyone with a severe TBI has to wait eight days prior to transfer? Um, some of these patients do better when you get them out quicker. Um, and it's very unpredictable to determine who uh, is going to swell when. Uh, should this patient have flown with a bolt? He's a GCS of 15, you know, when we let him go. So there was a lot of things uh, kicked around on, you know, how can we monitor and do things better. And um, we were unable to come up with uh, broad swathing recommendations to change the system other than error in judgment. I think we hit most of this. Yep. All right. Excellent. Thank you. And our uh, final presenter today is uh, Captain Rodriguez. He'll be discussing a Roll 5 complication, which uh, I think you'll find very, very interesting. Sir. That's great. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for, for attending. I've had a couple cups of coffee. My wife yells at me for speaking too fast all the time anyway, so I'll get to this pretty quickly. Here today to talk about Rule 5 complications, a lot different than what we saw downrange. Uh, these are, these are, we usually got our patients about three to five days, probably closer to five days after the day of injury. I don't have any disclosures or disclaimers. Um, next slide, please. Oh, too many. Let's go back to June of 2009. Um, this is a case that's been published in the literature. Uh, the reference will be in a couple slides. Uh, later, but uh, there's a 22-year-old Marine uh, that was on dismounted uh, uh, patrol in southern Afghanistan uh, when he stepped on a pressure plate, uh, a buried pressure plate IED. A pressure plate, uh, just as it sounds, there's two contacts that are held open until a downward force uh, is applied to the to the plates, uh, creating a, a complete circuit. That circuit then detonates the explosive. Um, he was severely injured and was taken to the uh, local combat surgical hospital. Uh, upon arrival to the to the cache, he lost his vital signs. Uh, ED, uh, resuscitative thoracotomy was performed. Uh, an open uh, open cardiac massage uh, uh, was performed as well. The return of spontaneous uh, circulation uh, did uh, occur, and he was taken to the operating room 
uh, for further evaluation. He was found to have a right hip disarticulation, a left traumatic uh, above knee amputation, uh, as well as a left orchiectomy, uh, urethral transection, extraperitoneal bladder disruption, and intraabdominal sigmoid uh, injury. He underwent appropriate surgical interventions at the uh, Combat Surgical Hospital, and during the, uh, the stay there, he received 34 units of PAC cells, 29 units of FFP, four platelets, and three units of whole blood. Five days later, he arrived to us at the National Naval Medical Center uh, in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, this was a year and a half before the merger with Walter Reed, uh, but we were the National Naval Medical Center back then. His GCS was 11T. He had undergone serial debridements in Germany and was doing well. He was alert. Uh, he, was, uh, he was intubated, but he was uh, appropriately interactive. Um, at that time, we didn't have the most robust uh, system in place for transferring Moonvax. The system that was used in Germany was different than the system they used, or we used at Bethesda, and so the patients would be transferred with curlex gauze uh, wrapped around all their extremities, or around all their wounds. wounds. We took down uh, the curlex gauze at the bedside uh, the night that he arrived, and we noticed there were some small little patchy areas of blackness. Um, we had just been to the operating room the day before, though, and we figured those were uh, electrocautery burns. Um, maybe just the zone of, of, of the blast injury was still propagating. Um, we didn't really think much of it. Uh, he arrived to us on miropenem, uh, vancomycin, and fluconazole. There was some concern about a candida infection. Uh, he was in renal failure on uh, CVVH. His uh, temperature that night did spike to 104, um, and he did a weight count of 25,000. Um, as we took him to the operating room the next morning uh, for washout and debridement. Here's a picture of that first operative case. Um, I do have a pointer. Uh, it may be kind of hard to see, but you see some necrosis here, some blackness all over the place. This was patchy necrosis. And this wasn't there from talking to the, the folks in Germany at the end of their operation. So this wasn't diathermy or, or electrocautery burns. It may be hard to see, but this area down here, it almost looks like a burnt butterscotch appearance to the wound itself. Um, that'll come into play a little bit later. Um, we sent some histopathology slides down to the, uh, to the lab. And this was read as normal. Um, obviously, this is a morbidity mortality conference, so uh, it probably wasn't normal, but I will argue that the, the eye cannot see what the mind does not know to look for. Uh, next couple days uh, were kind of rocky for him. Um, he went back and forth to the operating room for serial debridements. We were going every other day as just our standard operating procedure, but we eventually had to go every day on this gentleman uh, because uh, every time we go to the operating room, we found more and more black wounds. Um, we didn't quite understand what we were seeing, but we knew that there was, must have been some type of infectious process that we were missing because his white blood cell count was continuing to rise. It was now in the 30s, even got up to high as 45,000, and his temperatures continued to spike to 104. Um, we uh, went down to the lab the next time we went to the operating room um, with tissue samples. And this time we asked the pathologist to run some special stains because we said, listen, there's something that we're not seeing. Within 24 hours, they're able to turn this around to us. And here's the, uh, the, the GMS stains. And you can see this is a blood vessel right here. I should have pointed that out to you before. This is a blood vessel right there um, on the H&E stain. But this is a blood vessel. You can see now some blackness inside the blood vessel. Here's the, the PAS stain, and you can see there's a blood vessel again. See some purple things inside that blood vessel. That's fungus. And so when you go back and look at this H&E slide, it may be hard to see from the back there, but you can see some small little vacuoles. Those small little vacuoles are fungus invading the blood vessel wall. So what we're dealing with um, by histopathology was an invasive fungal infection, and the pathologist said to us, look, that's most likely to be um, mucormycosis. So we, we broadened our, our antifungal uh, therapy to uh, liposomal amphotericin B. Um, and at the same time now, we're about five days into his stay with us, his uh, blood pressure started dropping. Um, he started having more and more ventilation requirements. Um, he started getting more and more sick on us. He uh, went into hepatic failure. Um, he really was going into multi-organ system failure. We did not, we thought we were adequately treating the, the uh, uh, mucormycosis. Uh, he underwent bronchoscopy. We sent down uh, 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 lavage uh, to the lab and ended up growing out aspergillus. Uh, so at the, so we, did, we did broaden him out to, from amphotericin to we added the posiconazole. However, this is now post-injury day 15 to 16. Uh, we're on maximal pressure support. His GCS had gone from what was 11T to a 4T now. Um, he was in renal failure. He was in hepatic failure. He was, he was in multi-organ system failure. Um, every time we go back to the operating room, the wounds were continuing to be black. Uh, we were, we were, we had closed, or uh, we had closed his abdomen. We had to reopen that. 
All of his extremities were growing out fungus um, uh, uh, from, from each of the wounds that he had. Uh, we had a family meeting, and the family decided to withdraw care. So post-injury uh, day 20, hospital day number 15 for us, um, he, uh, he, uh, uh, we withdrew care, and he died. Uh, secondary to septic shock and multi-organ system failure from widely disseminated uh, mucormycosis and aspergillus. Next slide, please. So the identified issues here, obviously, is mortality, um, uh, with a delay in diagnosis, improper uh, antifungal utilization, and renal failure. Great. So, Captain Rodriguez, thank you for that. And we're going to get into a very nice discussion on this as you present some of the data that you've done. But your group, and through your lead, has really brought about identifying this issue. So based at that time, the standard of care, I think we can agree, has been met. The in-theater care and what you started doing when you received the patient was to, at that time, what was routine for this type of patient. Would you agree and would the panel agree at that time? But based on what you found and how you approached it and through what you're going to present later, we really uh, found some opportunity for improvement and capitalized on that. So... This, Dr. Stewart, or? this is the first uh, invasive fungal infection case that we took care of at uh, Bethesda. So I think this is a, a, a great, a great uh, patient case to present. It, it, may, be, it may be the, fir the first in Bethesda. This would have been a relatively common out of Vietnam be because if you look at invasive zygomycetes or invasive so, so I think the, the history is classic. This black spots that appear on the wound, uh, the uh, so, so so the the things to look for. These are common for civilians. These are common in tornado wounds. That uh, there's essentially a, an epidemic in uh, the Missouri tornado mm -hmm. of this. This is also common for lots of people in the room because you get patients referred to you who are basically clinical disasters with invasive soft tissue infections that people can't tell. So zygomycetes have the unique ability to be invasive. The most common thing, of course, is rhinocerebral mucormycosis is known about it, but it crosses tissue planes. But the, the clinical history was classic. Uh, to me, the opportunity for improvement here, the surgeons, I think you did the right thing of sending histopathology. It's a pathology failure. That, 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 that should have been recognized. Now, the one thing that, that, that I do is I, in this situation is I tell them we're looking for an invasive zygomycete or invasive aspergillus. And so, so they, they're looking for something when, when, when we tell them that. And I tell them I need to know the answer now, today. So this is, this is, this is common in more tropical climates. The reason why you don't, haven't seen a lot of this my, my hypothesis why you haven't seen a lot of cases out of the current conflict is because it comes from an arid, dry climate. But uh, the, the more tropical you get, the more common these things are. And you're going to tell us the principles, I'm sure, but the principles are immediate diagnosis, uh, immediate institution of amphotericin, and aggressive debridement. Having said that, truncal invasive, if this is a truncal invasive zygomycete, Maybe aspergillus, based on the, based on what you've shown us here. But if that is, then the mortality really does approach 100 percent for invasive truncal zygomycete infections. This is a great case to present because we don't know it, but we'll all see it. I tried to get this on the on the critical care board exam unsuccessfully, I will say, but I tried to get a question on there to basically alert people to this. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. So I think. Um Along those lines, this is the classic case of identifying where the opportunity for improvement is and then hitting pretty much all those things listed on the bottom there, how we go about it, improving the system, educating and training, and communicating the process throughout the continuum of care. So I know Captain Rodriguez has a bunch of teaching to do right now, so I'll turn it over to him. So throughout the rest of the summer, we did see a handful more of invasive fungal infection patients, and throughout the joint trauma system, we're now over 150 uh, we've had eight, eight fatalities. Um, I will tell you that eight people have died with invasive fungal infection, not necessarily from invasive fungal infection. Um, but uh, Dr. Stewart, thank you. You took, you discussed a lot of my slides here. Um, here we go. Next slide, please. 
Um, mucromycosis and aspergillus. Uh, mucromycosis is a bread mold, and it grows great in culture. Uh, you'll get a culture back within a couple of days. Aspergillus, not so much. It's a little more fickle. It can take up to four weeks to, to grow in culture. So when we're sending culture down, we're sending tissue, and uh, we, we will check it every day for a week, and then we check it every week for a full month after that to make sure aspergillus is not grown. Um, typically speaking, this comes from the, uh, uh, from the ground. It, the, the, uh, the, these wounds are inoculated with dirt. You saw the very first slides that Colonel Gross showed about how dirty these wounds are. Well, that, that wounds, those wounds, the, the dirt just gets forced up into those wounds uh, from the blast. Um, a, lot of our, a lot of these wounds uh, came from the, uh, the, the very um, uh, uh, the, the river region in Afghanistan. I'll show you pictures of that in a second. But that's where all the organic debris is coming from. Typically speaking, these are infections found in immunocompromised patients. Trauma, uh, obviously, is, a, is an immunosuppressant, as is a supermassive transfusion that this uh, marine received. Um, angioinvasion causes the, uh, the tissue necrosis distal to where uh, the, uh, the uh, fungus invades the blood vessel. The issue is, though, if this is a blood vessel, I don't have a great slide for this, but as the fungus grows up, it invades the vessel. Everything distal to that will die. The problem is, is the fungus will continue to grow along the blood vessel. You may have bleeding tissue, but the fungus remains. And that's why this really has got to be a, a multimodal therapy of, of surgical debridement, um, topical and antifungals. Um, in our, in our patient population, 72% of these patients will have co-infection with bacteria. Uh, that's important here in a second. And then you can see some numbers there that I had just mentioned previously. Next slide, please. You've got to have a high index of suspicion in these wounds. Um, what we did is we tried to identify some commonalities amongst uh, all these, these patients, and we did, we did find four risk factors. Uh, pretty much if you're on dismounted uh, patrol in southern Afghanistan, and you're involved in an IED blast, and you have an above knee amputation with a supermassive transfusion, that puts you at the highest risk of developing invasive fungal infection. We had literally hundreds of these types of patients. Uh, the invasive fungal infection will typically present three to five days post-injury. And clinically speaking, just like our patient, had high spiking temperatures, white blood cell counts uh, that are super normal, um, and uh, they'll become profoundly tachycardic. On physical exam in the operating room, you're going to see these areas of recurrent necrosis. And what you see here, this is a different patient. This is hospital day two with us, uh, post-injury uh, post day seven. This wound, uh, when I left Germany, was, was bleeding and bright red. Um, this is what we saw. In fact, we got into arguments with the folks in Germany when we were first dealing with this. Is how could you send us these dirty wounds or wounds were, that were not completely uh, debrided? Well, obviously, uh, they, they had been, and this is fungus. And you can see, back to the operating the next day, this is not a clean wound. This is dirty again. And you can see slowly but surely over time, the wound does contract, it does get cleaned up, but this is all, uh, all as a result of serial uh, operative debridements. Histopathology, we do have a, uh, we, 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 send the histo, we send our histopathology specimens down to the lab and tell them exactly what we're looking for, and we have a policy. It does take a little bit of time to get us these results back. We get them back within 24 hours, um, no matter what day of the week we send it down. Uh, ther therapy, uh, as, Dr., um, uh, as Dr. Stewart alluded to, the main safe therapy is surgical debridement. Sometimes it's very tough, especially if it's in the nose, but by and large, the, uh, the uh, therapy is surgical. Um, we will start, we call the grand slam of, of, anti, of, of uh, systemic therapy, ambosome and boriconazole, because when we see this invasive fungal infection, we don't know right away if we're dealing with mucormycosis or if we're dealing with an aspergillus. Uh, ambosome does not cover aspergillus terius in particular, so we've got to start both. Vancomycin and meropenem, 72% of these wounds are co-infected with bacteria. We don't know if it's gram-positive or gram-negative, so we start both of those. And for those antibiotic or antimicrobial stewards in the room, we do tailor or taper our antimicrobial therapy according to our culture results. We also use topical Dakin solution at 0.025%, and we use that in an installation vac where we soak for five minutes and we provide negative pressure therapy for 55 minutes. Where does this occur? Um, as Dr. Stewart alluded to, it's not going to occur, occur in the desert, and this is all the desert area here in Afghanistan, but we did plot the areas where everybody was injured uh, that developed invasive fungal infection, which you can see here, it occurs right, in the, right along the Sangin River in southern Helmand province. And so we took that data um, and looked to see what environmental factors would predispose our troops to developing invasive fungal infections, and what we found is the river. Um, next slide, please. And we superimpose that to other parts of the world where we think we may be fighting in the future where we have similar conditions. This is Iraq, and you can see here is the slide uh, that we produced. There is Mosul up there, 
uh, Baghdad is over here. So we're fighting right now on the outskirts of what we would consider to be areas that would be prime for developing invasive fungal infections. We took all this data and we put this together in a clinical practice guideline that was first published in 2016, excuse me, 2012. It was updated uh, just this past August where we, where we talk about prevention vice therapy. We, we're really harping on prevention uh, in addition to therapy. We've got our uh, suspicion. There's our risk factors there. At the role two, what we're doing downrange is good surgical debridement, and we're starting the topical therapies in these patients um, with uh, a Dakin solution. We don't have the wound vacs that we can trans. Uh, we can we can send from theater uh, back uh, to, to Germany, but we are using the uh, topical gauze uh, and with, uh, excuse me, topical Dakin's uh, uh, soaked gauze. That's what I have. Pretty much out of time as the next uh, session will be starting immediately after that, but if uh, anyone has any questions, we're around. I would like to thank this esteemed panel for such a fantastic job. I really appreciate your time. Colonel Martin, if you want to close it out. Yeah, I, I just want to make one comment that Ronnie Stewart brought up. You know, this might not have been a big surprise to a Vietnam surgeon. Right? So once again, we forgot lessons learned between wars. And that's a big focus of what we're trying to do now is to stop that pattern. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody up here on the stage. And thank you for joining us this morning. up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.